From So Say We All and KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming, the series that features true stories from the lives of America's veterans told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's episode is titled Souvenirs, which in the context of the stories you're about to hear is a little tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of that dark humor people under stress will employ from time to time to get by, but I'm sure you'll appreciate it by the end. The gist is that what happens overseas comes back home with you and can find a way to reappear back into your life when you least expect it. And we have three wonderful contributors to illustrate that point. Brandon Lingle of the U.S. Air Force and Alex Flynn and Brent Wingfield of the Army. So Say We All's program director, Julia Evans, helped me out by interviewing Brent. So when you hear the voice of an English-American woman kick in, that's Julia Evans. We're going to start off with Brandon Lingle, who serves as a public affairs officer with the U.S. Air Force. Public affairs people, in my experience, have a very specific kind of voice. They have to, to keep the public informed without divulging classified information, and never, ever do they say what they're actually thinking as people. Which is why it's fascinating to me that Brandon's other jobs with the Air Force is as a professor of literature at the Academy and as an editor for their Journal of Arts and Culture, War, Literature, and the Arts. Positions that let him dive into every facet of messy human emotion related to militarized conflict. We talked about how he negotiates those two roles, and he gave us some great readings of stories that have appeared in places like the New York Times, Guernica, and Missouri Review, among others. So here's Brandon. Hi, I'm Brandon Lingle, and this is an essay titled Queen's Creek. Midway into a late-night run, I veered down the trail to my neighborhood's dock. It's November 2011, and I've been home from Iraq for barely a week. The oyster shell path glows as it curves away from the homes and plunges into a swath of forest. I navigate the wooden stairs that zigzag down the hillside. At the bottom, a pier spans 100 yards over marshland into the main channel of Queens Creek. Just outside Williamsburg, Virginia, and surrounded by bases from every service, the stream runs through the epicenter of America's military might. A few miles from the ruins of Jamestown and the monument marking Washington's victory at Yorktown, this ribbon of brackish water reinforced defensive lines for colonists, revolutionaries, rebels, and spies. The creek shielded English colonists from Powhatans. During the Civil War, Magruder and Longstreet used it to bolster Confederate lines. The creek forms the western edge of land DuPont used as a dynamite plant during the Great War. Workers lived in a company town named after Russell Penniman, the creator of ammonia-based dynamite. One report says the factory produced 54,000 shells daily. The site became the Navy's Cheetah Annex during World War II. Today, the base remains a Navy storage facility and recreation area. It's also an EPA Superfund site. Queens Creek also marks the eastern boundary of a government site called Camp Perry. Originally a Navy base, where 150,000 CBs trained for World War II duty, today the consensus is that the CIA uses the base to train recruits. I see bearded Camp Perry guys during my 7 a.m. gas station coffee stop. Lots of Velcro and pockets, tattoos and gray t-shirts. Blacked out choppers buzz my house every few weeks, and I wonder if geared up operators hang in the open doors, eyeballing my neighborhood through the green and black of night vision goggles. Sometimes when I barbecue or toss the ball to my kids, I hear machine gun fire from across the creek. Every couple of months, around 3 a.m., Camp Perry explosions pummel my home. Shockwaves rattle walls, picture frames, and my children's nerves. The bombs jolt me awake, and I feel the same adrenaline-tinged heartbeat that I felt after explosions in Baghdad. The blasts share the same ominous aftermath, silence. 
Most times you never know the explosion's cause or consequence. Across the water from Camp Perry's black ops and barbed wire, docks, clubhouses, pools, and mansions line the sloping banks. At New Quarter Park, mountain bike trails ease past the remnants of Confederate earthworks. Sometimes I hear of locals digging up cannonballs, musket rounds, or arrowheads. Camp Perry's choppers are silent this night, but my footsteps rattle the dock's planks above the drone of vehicles blasting across the I-64 bridge 200 yards downstream. The two-by-fours reflect a bony light under the blood moon. I hear a splash in the slough off to my right, and I keep my pace despite a tweak in my chest. The stream resembles crude, flowing thick, slow and silent, toward the York, Chesapeake, and the Atlantic beyond. Near the end of the dock, I spot a person silhouetted against the dim sky. Five meters out, I apologize for disturbing his peace. He says, no worries. He leans into the rail, flanking a line of empty beer bottles and pinches a wad of tobacco into his lower lip. I'm still breathing hard and sweating as we navigate through introductions in the weather. I learn his name is Will. He's on leave, en route from a Fort Sill artillery job to Special Forces School. I'm on leave too, two weeks off before getting back to work at Langley Air Force Base. The hazy sky commingled with swamp stench and car exhaust yanks my mind back to Baghdad. I savor the smell of the primordial mud riding the breeze as our discussion slides toward Mesopotamia. He completed his second Iraq tour a few weeks before I returned from my first, during the death throes of the nine-year odyssey. This tour was a joke compared to the first, he says. Last time we could shoot back. I nod in the dark. It doesn't add up, he says. What good is an artillery unit that can't fire back? I begin to think that it's a good thing his unit wasn't pummeling neighboring Iraqis. And then I'm ambushed by the reality. It's much easier to think that way when you're safe at home on a brisk autumn night. Makes about as much sense as carrying unloaded weapons in a war zone, I say. Some soldiers didn't even have their own ammo. The bosses were more afraid of our own guys. Accidental discharge. Or how about bases not having overhead cover? Overhead cover, that expensive armor usually built over soldiers' quarters and dining facilities, can help minimize the damage from rockets and mortars. Even after years of conflict, most military bases in Iraq had very little of this extra protection. Fifteen service members died in June 2011, the deadliest month for Americans in Iraq since 2008. The worst came when a militia attacked a Baghdad FOB with improvised rockets. It's tough to say whether or not the overhead cover could have saved the six soldiers roused from their bunks as their world closed in just before dawn that June 6th. We pay millions to build up the Iraqi military, but aren't willing to spend the extra cash to protect our troops, he says. The Iraqis I worked with could barely fix a flat on their Humvee. I'm not sure what we accomplished in the last year. We talked, drank chai, and got lots of people hurt and killed. A pause. I killed a 16-year-old boy, he says. Our battalions only kill this deployment. I stare at his moon shadow on the dock, feel a stab of fall air through my t-shirt. Outside Kirkuk, got pinned down by someone taking pot shots, he says. We figured out where the shooter was, and the lieutenant colonel froze, nearly crying, laying on the ground, ordered me to take the shooter out, so I did, just a barefoot kid with a rusty AK. He fell in a drainage ditch, I remember the muddy water flowing over his feet. 
We talked for more than an hour. I learned that his dad is a Vietnam vet who teaches combat skills at Camp Perry. Will says he'll work out and run land navigation courses through the woods during his one week of leave. He says he wants to deploy to Afghanistan, or maybe Iraq again. I'll handle whatever they throw at me, he says. With that, he lobs his empty beer bottle in a mortar arc toward the water. The glass catches hints of moonlight before exploding the creek's surface. Concentric ripples run silently from the epicenter out into the darkness, just as military forces flow out and into the world from this place I call home. And just as the tide runs in to fill the creek, so too do the unending consequences of our military odysseys. As I walk toward shore, my mind drifts back to before my deployment, to when my family and I watched summer sunsets from the dock. When we arrived in Tidewater, Virginia, we complained to each other about the sewer smell permeating our neighborhood. Soon we realized this was normal for our intertidal stream. The byproduct of growth and decay churning in the water and mud, I'd point out raccoon tracks lining the mire or snapping turtles holding fast in small water pockets. At the end of the dock, we tossed lines with hooked minnows we'd scooped from their schools in a mesh bucket trap. We'd hoped to catch croaker, but usually pulled blue crabs. Time after time, I'd hoist the crabs onto the deck, and our seven-year-old twin boys would taunt the crustaceans with sticks. The creatures always retreated with their claws up, like miniature boxers blocking incoming blows or shielding their eyes from the sun. Our boys jumped and laughed until the crabs found their way to the edge and fell, sprawling backward, back into their brown water murk. So Brandon Lingle, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. Could you start us off by telling you where you were in life and what brought you into the service? So I grew up next to Vandenberg Air Force Base in Central California. It's a gigantic missile base that, when I was a kid, would launch missiles in the early hours of the morning. The Cold War was still going on, so they wouldn't announce when the missiles would launch. And many times when I was a child, I'd wake up in the middle of the night to this terrible rumble. I think it was an earthquake, but it would be a missile taking off to fly out over the Pacific to a missile test range. So it was interesting growing up in this military town with Air Force people coming into my parents' business and air shows and, and all of these things that go on with the town that depends on a military base for many things. So that influenced me quite a bit. I uh, had the opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy in 1991 to watch a family friend's graduation. And this was after Desert Storm and, and it was super patriotic. And as an eighth grader, I was just really mesmerized by this and got it in my head that I should go to the Air Force Academy and become an Air Force pilot. That didn't work out, and I ended up a public affairs officer in the Air Force, and, and that's what I've been doing since 2000. Can you talk to us about how being a public affairs officer and a writer have kind of coalesced which one came first and informed the other? So when I was at the Academy, I had the opportunity to take some creative writing classes with Donald Anderson, the editor of War Literature and the Arts and the director of creative writing at the Air Force Academy. And those classes, I guess, changed my life and got me interested in power of words and influenced a lot of decisions since then. 
I got the opportunity to earn a master's degree and go back to the Air Force Academy and teach in the English department. And I did that from 2007 to 2010. That was a great, supportive, nurturing environment for art and creativity. And 2007 to 2010, I mean, these were the heights of of the surge in Iraq and things were escalating in Afghanistan. and, And it was just a very interesting time to be part of this war literature community. Can you talk a little bit about how the rigor and conformity of, of military life gels with the expression and subversive nature of writing? That's a great question. So War Literature and the Arts, it's the oldest and, and to my knowledge, the only literary journal exploring the intersection of war and art. They started in 1989. The Air Force Academy is, is such a, a structured and rigorous environment that, at least from my experience as a cadet, every minute of your day is accounted for. And so when you enter a creative writing workshop and have the opportunity to create and have discussions about art, it's a powerful escape. It's also empowering. And I think we should mention that in addition to your day job, you're also serving as the nonfiction editor for Literature and the Arts. That's right. Uh, Donald Anderson, um, sort of my writing mentor, one of my writing mentors, uh, he asked me to help out with the journal a few years ago, and, and uh, it's been a great experience. Yeah, can you talk about that That experience? It's like watching the war kind of come back to you in the form of these essays that are being written by service members, or ex-veterans, I should say. When I was teaching at the academy, we were oftentimes teaching literature about a war that was happening at the same time. And it was a very different time than when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy. In 1996 to 2000, there there weren't any huge wars that our country uh, was engaged in. There was no prospect of, oh, well, you're going to go direct combat after you graduate. Whereas the cadets that I was teaching at the Air Force Academy, I mean, they they volunteered to serve in the middle of multiple wars. And, and I had great respect for that. So it was really interesting to sort of engage with them, oftentimes with literature that, that challenged a lot of the things that, that you would expect at, at a military academy. I mean, I suspect some of this literature people would see as subversive or too questioning. And I think it was good to challenge cadets with that type of material. I'm Brandon Lingle, and this is an essay titled Halaka. No striped pole hangs outside this barber shop in a tan stucco building once part of the bath party headquarters. Instead, a hand-painted sign with a red arrow guides customers through what used to be Chemical Ollie's torture chambers into a two-chair shop that could pass for any small-town America barber. Cigarette smoke clouds the barbicide air. Creased Baghdadi newspapers flutter in the fan's breeze beside day-old stars and stripes and a roughed-up western horseman. No penthouses or playboys hide under the table. The two Iraqi barbers turn and smile as I enter, gesture toward a couch. Please, sir, sit, sit, please. The faded leather couch embraces me as I wait. Just a couple weeks into an Iraq deployment, and I'm exhausted from the dust in the air that you never get used to. I adjust my holstered Beretta so it doesn't dig into my hip. The shop features the same wall art as the base barbers back home. Massive grinning faces and sharp military haircuts. My dirty boots and camouflage contrast the barber's shined loafers and button-ups. The tall barber on the left works an older, Iraqi man's hair slowly in sync with the pace of their conversation. With every scissor swipe, salt and pepper hair slides down the black cape and floats past the shined shoes to the concrete floor. 
I wonder how the old man in the chair earns his living. Does he work on this U.S. base all day, only to leave silently to return to his family in Katamiya or Dura at night? Or does he live within this tea-walled patch of the West, only to visit his family when the threat is lowest? Does he even have any family left? The shorter barber cuts a soldier's hair silently. Sometimes he joins the tall barber's conversation, and sometimes he hums to the tinny Arabic music streaming from a 1970s clock radio, the kind with the cozy orange glow lighting flip numbers, like the one my father gave me when I was eight. I remember feeling the orange light's warmth against the clear plastic window on foggy California nights. I watched the barber's mustache move with the music, and I wonder about his life before 2003, 1990, or even 1980. The Americans are silent, only finger numbers for blade guards, smiles, and nods. The short barber cuts around the soldier's head with shuffle steps, choppy and quick. He flings the hair off his clippers like it's contagious. He cuts two soldiers' hair before the tall barber finishes his Iraqi customer. I'm intrigued when the short barber wields the straight razor around the soldier's ear, the nape of his neck, with quick flicks of his wrist, a steady pace, a jingling gold bracelet, a pinky ring flash, and a snap to close the blade. Then the barber smiles, cracks the cape, collects his money, and motions for me. In the tilted chair, the barber shrouds me under the cape. I'm lulled by the language I don't understand, adrift and at home. As the clippers hum, I return to my hometown barber shop in Central California with the same smoke and drone of men's voices, the same messy pile of newspapers and magazines, hustlers stashed under the back table, and the Monday morning quarterbacking of Friday's high school football games. Before my wedding, my father told me to go to the barber to get a straight razor shave. A tradition, he said, and that his father had told him to do the same. When I asked Winston, the white-haired owner of the Matador, for a shave, he laughed. Man, we haven't done those in years. Cali Law. And I told Winston I needed a haircut for my wedding. He said, oh, your sucker cut. And everyone gets a free sucker cut. Turns out there's no log and straight razor shaves in California. And in that Iraqi barber chair, I thought of my father, gone more than five years now. I imagine him getting a shave in some ancient Illinois barber shop 39 years ago. He's perfectly still at the razor's edge, decades before the Parkinson's trimmers. The older man in the chair next to me rises. The old man and barber hug and kiss and hold hands. I hear the barber say Yaba and Habibi, Arabic for father, my love. The tall barber walks the elder out and stands at the shop's doorway. Before long, the Iraqi barber cutting my hair waves a flat hand toward the mirror. Good? I stare in the mirror and nod. I don't like what I see, but the haircut is fine. The barber grabs the red, white, and blue striped Barbasol can just like my father's and gently dabs around my ears and neck. The shave cream smell sends a jolt from my chest. I dread the straight razor, but long for the cut. I watch the barber ease the blade around my neck and ears. I feel the razor's tug, hear it work, and revere how the barber wipes the blade on his bare palm after each pass.
in your story, the young man you meet by the river expresses a lot of overt frustration and cynicism about his tour of duty in Iraq and his experience overseas. And I wanted to ask you how you walk the line between acknowledging and honoring the validity of those frustrations that some service members feel while still performing your duties as a public affairs officer and kind of the voice in some instances or, or, or the go-between between the military and civilians. Yeah, that, that character in that essay is frustrated and his frustrations mirror some of the feelings that I was experiencing at that time too, just coming back from that experience. And it's okay to be frustrated. Um, I, I think people have to grapple with these hard feelings. If it was easy, I think we would have bigger problems. Um, mm. I think you can still be a patriot and, and ask questions. I think you can still be loyal and critique things. It becomes dangerous when we don't ask questions or we don't really analyze the decisions that we're making. So as a public affairs officer, I'm, I'm constantly navigating these sort of murky waters. In a war zone, there are a lot of barriers to communication, whether it's it's operational security or sort of a commander's intent or the politics. There's just a lot of challenges. The real stories from war zones aren't the fun runs happening on giant fobs. The real stories are what is happening out in the field or in the combat hospital. And oftentimes those are the stories that are hardest to get out. Insofar as you're able to talk about it, would you mind sharing an anecdote or a story of one of the more difficult challenges and stories to work with in your role as a public affairs officer? So oftentimes I think this general momentum toward not acknowledging the ugliness of war, whether that's people getting killed or injured or damaged to bases or innocent people getting killed, the list goes on. Oftentimes the institution, there's just this sort of unspoken inertia to not acknowledge the ugliness. I found it very important to try to at least get a glimmer of the realities of what the thousands of men and women were facing over there and are facing there today in war zones. So for me, I think most of the challenging stories came from Craig Joint Theater Hospital at Bagram Airfield, Afghanistan, and that's the largest coalition hospital in Afghanistan. And there was this day that I went there to work with a surgeon that uh, I went to the academy with. He had done some humanitarian work on a little girl named Zuhal, and I got to witness that surgery and watch this sort of hopeful thing. He was operating on this 11-year-old girl, and it would give her a healthy life. And it was a good, uplifting, hopeful story. A few weeks later, she came back for a follow-up appointment. And so I was going to be at the hospital to, to work with the surgeon and cover this follow-up appointment, because it would be her last appointment, and she would go to school and continue with her life. Well, that day when I walked into the hospital, I bump into the surgeon, and he's in scrubs, and, and he's all sweaty and covered in blood, and, and he's like, uh, come with me. We'll see the little girl later. We have a bunch of trauma that we're dealing with right now, and I walk into this operating room. Earlier that morning, a suicide bomber had attacked a checkpoint and wounded and killed a number of security contractors. They're Nepalese security contractors. And in this operating room, uh, this guy was gravely injured. Um, the neurologist was working on this guy's brain and multiple surgeons were working on different parts of his body. And it was just this very surreal contrast between the hope for a normal life and this very real reality that this guy's probably going to die. And these guys were having conversations about, is this guy survivable? And and the neurologist says, well, if he survives, he won't be able to talk and he's going to be paralyzed and it'll be really tough for him. And unfortunately, he, he passed away that night. But after that sort of scene in the operating room, then we went and visited with the little girl and her father. It was a happy moment. And 
they gave her a, a box of Girl Scout cookies and sent her on her way. And as far as I know, she started school and everything is going okay. When you look at coverage of these conflicts, these very human, personal stories don't always get out. Oh, well, we have trained 10,000 Afghan policemen or, or whatever and, and trying to show progress that way. I just think it's difficult for institutions to capture the personal stories. From your experience being in the military for 15 years, and as you said, in cadets four years prior to that, and having yeah. seen you know, several generations in that time term out and leave, and I imagine keeping in contact with friends who have retired and, and left the armed forces, using all that body of experience and those relationships you've, you've gathered over the years, if you could give one piece of advice to somebody who's about to leave the military now, what do you think it would be? Yeah, I think it's really important for people to maintain the relationships that they've developed in the military for a variety of reasons. And I also think it's crucial that people make sure their military records are correct. I hear stories of, of people who get out of the military. The infamous DD-214 is not accurate or it doesn't reflect something that they did during their military service. And, and that's the key document to everything. As far as I know, from everything that I've heard, that's the document that unlocks VA benefits and, and different things like that. So if you did go to Afghanistan or Iraq and it doesn't show up on your DD-214 and then 20 years from now you run into issues, um, some type of health problem or something, and you go to the VA and said, I think this is combat related and there's no proof of that, then you're in big trouble. So maintain your relationships and, uh, and make sure your paperwork is accurate. And if you don't understand or know what it should say, there are various helping agencies that can help you make sure all of your information is as accurate as it can be. Brandon Lingle, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be here. Hey there, friends. Dewey Bratcher here, a veteran of the U.S. Navy and host of Permission to Speak Freely, a web video series we produced with KPBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's Veterans Coming Home Initiative. A group of contributors from Incoming got together with Justin and the folks at KPBS and decided to tackle some of the biggest misconceptions veterans face after returning to the civilian world with some humor and wit and a little bit of sass. If you enjoy Incoming, we think you'll be glad to see Permission to Speak Freely, too. And you can check it out online at kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. That's kpbs.veteranscominghome.org. We think you'll be glad you did, and hopefully you'll want to share it. Hey, thanks for supporting your friendly neighborhood veteran artist. I'm Dewey, and I'm out. Welcome back to Incoming, where we hear true stories from the lives of America's military told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. Continuing with today's theme of souvenirs, Julia Evans, our program director here at Socia We All, sat down with Alex Flynn. Here's Julia. Alex Flynn joined the Army in 2008 and spent four years in the infantry. Then he became a combat correspondent for the next three. He writes about Afghanistan in the way of a photojournalist, in snapshots. But home now... The way he exists with conflict and danger is complicated. I'm, I'm just terrified of driving cars. I'm terrified of crossing the street. I'm, I'm incredibly cautious when I do everyday activities because people are stupid. I don't trust me. <laughs> but he's also drawn to continuing his work as a conflict photojournalist. I'm more addicted to just the idea of being in a place where everything counts. 
His vignettes show us the space between home and that relationship with danger. But I'll let Alex tell you the rest. My name is Alex Flynn, and this is my story, Narratives. Private Miller is eating a Pop-Tart now, and later today, he'll have watched two men die. Then he'll tear into dinner afterward like it's the last meal he'll ever have. His platoon sergeant, a veteran of inconceivable horrors in Iraq and Afghanistan, will remark, It's so weird, man. Every time these guys see death like that, they get hungry. I've never been able to figure that out. Later that evening, as the sun slowly dips below the horizon, with the staccato of small arms fire and tracer rounds arcing through the sky, he'll stand on the back ramp of a striker staring into nothing and say, to no one in particular, or maybe say to me, since I was the only one staring at nothing with him, I can't get the faces of all the dead people I've seen out of my head. I'll be taken aback, and I won't know what to say, so I'll try and joke. That last guy didn't have a face, kid. Chill out. Then he'll snap out of it, giggling like the 19 or 20-year-old kid he is, and we'll go back to talking about girls and booze and how it's so cold and we're not allowed to build a fire. He'll ask me to email the pictures I took of him today. My family would probably print them out, he'll say. They're really proud. I'm standing in the frozen food section of Sam's Club and I hear the beeping sound of a forklift and I close my eyes and I'm back. Back in Afghanistan, in freezing rain, lighting a cigarette and the second I spark my lighter I'm standing in a cloud of dust. I can't breathe because my mouth is filled with grit and I can't hear anything except a high-pitched ringing and my cigarette is still burning on my lips and the 13-year-old boy I was following around a corner is convulsing on the ground in front of me. The nearby Afghan National Army soldiers are gone, presumably blown apart. I notice bits of their uniforms stuck in a nearby tree, fluttering in the breeze, which for a moment is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But the kid, that poor kid, his legs, jaw, and left arm are gone and I'm giggling because I'm in shock and it looks like the kid is doing the worm, but he's not. He's in his death throes. It's dead quiet because the kid can't do anything but make gurgling sounds as he fades and I hear one of our vehicles reversing to pick him up and check on me and it sounds just like the forklift in Sam's Club and my girlfriend says, baby, are you all right? and I shake it off and walk toward the automotive section and buy new tires for my Subaru. Nice tires. The most expensive all-weather tires I can buy because I'm not dying in a car accident. Thanks for being on Incoming. You were a combat correspondent. What came first for you, the Army or journalism? I'd always been interested in uh, journalism. I'd always been interested in photography. So when I joined the Army, that's what I initially tried to do, but it was 2008, and George Bush needed kids to go to Iraq. So they were like, no, that's not even a job you can do in the Army. You need to be a machine gunner. <laughs> I was in the infantry, and I just took pictures all the time. I always had my camera with me. And uh, my bosses, my platoon sergeant, squad leader and everything, uh, they wanted me to go to like the um, combat correspondent school for the army and get like dual qualified. It's called a secondary MOS. Yeah, that's that's pretty. They they were cool about it. They they knew what I wanted to do and they uh, and I got provided the opportunity to do it. So went to the army's broadcast journalism school, Fort Meade, Maryland. In your work, I see a dichotomy. You have a lot of really dark situations and imagery, and then this portrayal of pretty immature stuff. 19-year-olds, 20-year-old stuff. It's unsettling. Can you tell me where that comes from in your writing? When you're a journalist and you write, so if I'm going to write a news story that corresponds with my photographs that 
we went into this village today, and some people got blown up. Some people got shot. They died. You know, they go down on paper and go out to like wire services and news agencies. It'll say three dead acronyms and stuff, and you can just pass it off so easily. And that's not how I process. I, I don't like to process death, especially death that I've witnessed, like a statistic or numbers or acronyms or anything. I just wish there was a better way to describe how people died. Because photographs are one thing, but I think when you pair photographs with writing and stuff, you can paint a picture that's a lot more horrific. Do you feel like your camera was able to create a barrier between yourself and the trauma? As a civilian journalist, kind of, now, like working now, but as a soldier, like an army correspondent, no, it didn't create a barrier. If somebody got blown up, it wasn't my job to take pictures of them. It's my job as a soldier, like, to save their life, you know, help them. As a soldier, as a combat correspondent, there's no, like, question about that line. There's no questions about your moral responsibility. Like, you just, it's your job as a soldier to take care of people that are dying. So, I mean, I've, I've held IV bags in my left hand and, like, taken pictures with my right hand. What kind of work do you do now? Uh, conflict. Conflict stuff. I want to get back into, like, it's... There's, I think I'm, what I'm supposed to say is like, oh, it's a calling to cover all this. But it's not. It's exciting. War's exciting. As long as you don't die or somebody you know dies, it's exciting. Getting shot at's fun. Like, I'm not. There's no uh, other. It's an, it's an adrenaline thing. I see it more as a, um, almost like a civil service. Photojournalism, at least my role in photojournalism. More of a, a civil service. You don't, uh, firefighters are firefighters because they're not scared to run into a burning building. To be a, like a documentarian or to provide a historical record of something, you can't be scared to, like there's certain people that aren't going to be scared to do it, and those people need to be doing it if they're capable. I still have legs. I still have hands. I can use a camera. I know I can make pictures when people are shooting at me. So as long as I have that assurance, like that assurance myself, there needs to be somebody there that can take it. It makes me think of the ending of your story. At Sam's Club, how you want the best tires for your car? Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm like an old woman, I'm like a grandpa or grandma. I don't drive fast. I drive a very safe car. I'm terrified of your through someone's inaction, like your life is in danger. I don't know. I think that might be a byproduct of war and conflict and stuff. Maybe. And then on the other hand, would you consider yourself an emergency junkie? Is there a way to use the word junkie in, like, a positive way? Because <laughs> there, I think, junkie, you know, emergency junkie, like emergency powder, like the freebasing emergency. That would kill you. Um, I don't think I'm specifically addicted to, like, an, it, that sort of adrenaline rush, like where I'm going to do something incredibly dangerous just to feel that for a moment. I'm more addicted to just the idea of being in a place where everything counts, uh, everything matters, Every, it's life and death. When I wake up in the morning and I'm walking around in Afghanistan, I've got to pay attention to everything. Like, you're, everything's turned on. Everything's, you just feel more alive. If I could think of a specific incident um, when I realized I was good at it and that's, I, I wanted to pursue journalism, like photojournalism, I can't remember where I was. Somewhere in Pandora. This is southern Afghanistan. And uh, I got ambushed. We got ambushed. Some people fired three or four RPGs at us. And uh, small arms fire, like AK-47s, shooting AKs and uh, RPGs at us. 
when I went back and reviewed, I, I was working, I had a video camera, I was shooting B-roll. For the first five seconds, my hand was uh, shaking, and then it stops, like shaking entirely. And I, I kept doing that after every time I get in a firefight or every time uh, something sketchy would happen, I'd go back and like look at my footage. And I was like, I'm not shaking, I'm perfectly calm. Like that's that's good, that's good. There was a specific incident, it was that ambush, because I remember looking up at this kid, trying to find this guy to shoot him, <laughs> and just being perfectly calm with my uh, camera. The scene in, in Sam's Club, we think we're going to understand it at first, this kind of a narrative of a PTSD flashback. But then I think you take it someplace else. Do you deal with this a lot, that people sort of act like they understand your experience? They fill in the blanks of post-combat? Yeah, uh, that's people do... I think with greater like public awareness and, and greater uh, public understanding, people don't like. There's not as many people saying, "Oh, I understand what you've been through." Like, "Oh, yeah, I know how that feels," because that's like crisis management one-on-one. Like, you don't tell a person that's about to jump off a bridge that you know how they feel. That's not helping them. That's you don't know how that person feels. So, I also do think there's an issue in the United States now with PTSD being um, uh, fetishized. That's a good word for it. It's almost been popularized by these movies and these – it's just weird. It kind of it kind of irks me, like, how accepting people are of PTSD. And it's because of popular culture. So people form these – form opinions and form narratives from movies like, you know, like American Sniper or something or some other movie. Like, they, they, they have a preconceived notion in their head about what PTSD is. And there's so many different forms and there's so many – like, there's so many layers to that story that aren't told – you would assume like, oh, you have PTSD. I've heard that a lot. People assume I have PTSD, and uh, which is completely untrue. Like, I've been see, I saw a behavioral health specialist person, and the guy was like, oh, like the classic symptoms of PTSD. You don't exhibit any, any of these. You, uh, you know, there's no avoidance. You went to Ferguson too much. Like, you're not scared to go to war. You're not scared. And he's like, but we should like look into depression, or we should look into like these different, different types of. Uh, post-traumatic stress or moral injury. That's another thing that I think is gaining more public traction for me. Moral injury for me is um, I have more of an issue with some of the things I've done that I I think are immoral, um, which wouldn't be like typical stuff that you would think like, when, if I'm a soldier and I say, I've done immoral things, you would think, like, oh, I killed a civilian or something. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, politics or um, regional politics. Like, you know, my role as a soldier in a particular stage of the war, um, in an unwinnable war. Hey folks, if you've been enjoying this episode and others in the incoming series and the thought has ever occurred to you that you can do this yourself, we want to be the first to agree. Yes, you can. Several of the contributors you've heard on this show started off by participating in free veteran writing workshops offered by the nonprofit that produces Incoming or had their stories published in the Incoming Literary Journal. Visit our website at incomingradio.org where you can find information about classes, submission opportunities, and upcoming live performances by veteran authors and artists. Hopefully, you'll pick up a copy of our books while you're there. We welcome all generations and all branches with stories on every conceivable topic. 
It's our mission here at Incoming to help people understand who their military is and what it does, both at home and abroad. And we need your help to do it right. Visit incomingradio.org to learn more and drop us an email. We'll be glad you did. For our third and final contributor on today's show, tied around the theme of souvenirs, Julia Evans interviews Brent Wingfield. Here's Julia. It was the last day, the last mission of Brent Wingfield's tour in Afghanistan, and he'd left his decision down to the wire. Would he stay in or get out? It was, I don't know, that bond, it's enough. It was enough to keep doing it. He knew from his time in Iraq that there was no such thing as a perfect tour, a perfect homecoming. But this time in Afghanistan, he was lucky. He was almost there. And whether that meant he should quit or re-up, he couldn't decide. But I'll let Brent tell you the rest. Hi, my name is Brent Wingfield, and my story is called Homecoming. As I trudged through Afghanistan's lush Mizan River Valley on what would be my final combat patrol, I stopped for a second to catch my breath before climbing an earthen embankment. I had to keep my guys out of the riverbed where we were easy targets and off the roads where the locals liked to bury bombs. They didn't usually like placing IEDs in and around their homes. So to hell with the roads. I thought. We took the safest route through their fields and farms. None of us wanted to be the last casualty in a forgotten war, and no one was trying to be a hero, especially on our last mission. I took a breath and looked at the fields ahead. An acre of red poppies danced playfully in the breeze, and the craggy mountains cast a looming shadow over some mud-walled homes ahead. I marveled as the Afghan cliffs slowly swallowed the most beautiful sunset I had ever seen. It'd be kind of pretty if it weren't for all those crappy houses. The lush valley was a light show of colors. It was littered with crude, mud-walled homes, dirt roads, and the scars of centuries of war. I was captivated and sick of it. I missed my home, my wife, and my pug, Roxy. I missed having a beer after work. My gut wrenched over the decision I knew that I had to make, but I wasn't sure if I was ready to. I wasn't sure if I even wanted to hang up my boots and say goodbye to life in the infantry. After a seven-year love-hate relationship with the army, most of which was spent overseas, I realized that I love seeing the world, the camaraderie, the experience of serving, but I'd long since grown weary of the caveat. I was at the end of my enlistment and I had to choose, re-up or get out. I wanted to stay in, but I was tired. I was tired of saying goodbye to my wife, tired of keeping my family at a distance, and I was tired of keeping a guilty tab on my growing list of dead friends. I longed for a normal life, and even though I didn't have any idea what the hell that even meant, I just knew that it had to be better than all this. 
but I loved what I did. Training soldiers, leading them through combat, it was the most rewarding experience of my life. I loved the guys with whom I served like family. And being a grunt, it was all I'd known since I was 19. I wondered if I should just accept the fact that this, this was my life. I watched my soldiers following in formation. It had taken countless hours of training and a year at war to turn what was once a soup sandwich of misfits and teenagers into an effective fighting force. I smiled proudly and kept walking. As I stepped, I twisted my ankle and slipped. Gravity jerked my body one way and sent the 90 pounds of gear I was wearing violently in the opposite direction. I sailed to the ground like a bag of bricks. You all right? My platoon sergeant half giggled through my radio. This'll buff out, I answered, still spitting out pieces of Afghanistan. Miss this? <laughs> Let me count the ways. I dust myself off and kept moving. I reached the edge of the Scarlet Morphine Farm and climbed a wall to the next one. It was filled with poppies planted in neat rows, and as I climbed, my mind wandered back to scaling walls while fighting house to house in southern Baghdad a few years back. It wasn't anything like this. Back then, we'd quickly climb crude walls, rush into half-ruined homes, and race to the rooftop. Entire neighborhoods would erupt into gunfire, and my heart would race as I clutched my rifle's grip, my eyes and sights racing frantically through the haze of incoming lead and the confusion of trying to tell who was trying to kill us. And who was just trying not to get shot. I thought of the adrenal rush as bullets sang just overhead, that carnivorous dread that gnawed at our sanity, and how we fought through it, arrogantly. I thought of the dozen guys that didn't make it home and the couple dozen more who were broken, blown up, and shot. I remembered how the rest of us were left to carry on and fight in their absence. And I remembered how we tried to pick up the pieces of our lives after we went home. The dead, they're the lucky ones. I was still coming to terms with my first homecoming from war. On the eve of leaving Afghanistan, I relived old firefights by night and avoided them by day. I was so neurotic about my guy's safety because I was tired of seeing young Americans die on forgotten battlefields in wars that no one back home gave a damn about anymore. Screw this, I thought. I led my squad through the second poppy field and onto a small dirt road that was within eyesight of our mountain home. After a year spent battling the crags and my convictions, I walked the last few painful, muddy steps with my chin up because I knew that at least this time, it was all different. I knew I was still dealing with some old demons, but at least I'd managed to keep myself together. I had trained and led 10 soldiers through 12 months of combat. And this time, I was bringing all of them home alive. 
most of them were still in one piece. I did my job. I was proud. I looked at the faces of my soldiers and counted them as they walked through the concertina wire before keying my radio for the last time. Hey, 2-6, this is 2-3. We're 100%. Roger that, 2-3. Welcome home. I stepped into our sandbagged outpost and smiled proudly. The next day, I again counted my guys as they boarded a CH-47 helicopter. It was our ride out of the bomb-laden mountains and back to Camp Disneyland, otherwise known as Kandahar Airfield, or CAF. CAF was our next stop on our way back to Germany, where we were stationed. Good riddance. I remembered my first awkward homecoming, and I wondered how many years it would take to adjust this time. I closed my eyes and listened to the helicopter clamor through the desert dawn. I thought of red poppies. Later that night, a few of us went out to explore our interim home. Compared to our forsaken outpost, Kaf was a five-star resort, and we fully intended to enjoy ourselves. We bought cigars and pizza. We reminisced about humping our gear over mountains, getting rained on, and eating expired MREs, all while the pogues stationed on Kaf had such plush living conditions. The Leviathan Air Base had USO shows, contractor-run dining facilities, and even a weekly salsa night on the boardwalk, an actual boardwalk lined with shops and restaurants. Afghanistan. Individual experiences may vary, I joked as I chewed pepperoni pizza. Our 12 months here had truly sucked, but it paled in comparison to the combat I'd seen in Iraq years prior. I remembered the burned homes, the dead kids, friends losing limbs, and I felt stupid for complaining. I'm just happy we got everybody here, I said. Well, those soldiers of yours, my platoon sergeant looked to me. Brand, Espy, Spaulding. Yeah, they sure didn't make it easy, I nodded. Over the last year, I had to hold their hands through everything from weapons training to personal hygiene issues. I chewed in silence for several minutes. A greasy pizza and a Coke? I was in heaven. And that's when my platoon sergeant's phone rang. It was one of the soldiers in our platoon. I could hear the panicked voice. It's Spaulding, the voice said. Spaulding's been shot. What? Shot? It didn't make any sense. We were miles away from any real combat, and we were on the eve of our homecoming. We scrambled to our feet and out the door, clutching our rifles as we ran. My heart raced. Two of us stepped in the road and tried to flag down a passing bus. All I managed to hear, my platoon sergeant took a deep breath, was that Spaulding's been shot, he sighed. And that Baker did it. Baker? Baker was another soldier in our platoon and a close friend of Spaulding. And although they were both problem soldiers, none of this added up. He said something about, they were playing. My platoon sergeant's face cringed. 
and that Baker shot him in the head. The bus dropped us off at the combat support hospital exactly as the Humvee arrived that was carrying our wounded soldier, Riley Spaulding. His face was covered in blood-drenched gauze, and I could see that he'd suffered a point-blank gunshot wound to the forehead. My mind raced with questions. The reasons why were still fuzzy. The trauma was all that was clear. I watched four corpsmen carry Riley Spaulding onto a hospital bed and quickly wheel him inside. We followed closely. As they pushed the gurney through a doorway, Spaulding's bandage fell from his face. He's not going to make it, I thought. We watched the frantic doctors do their damnedest, but it was no use. It was too late. I looked at the hole in Riley's forehead. It was too much. I stuck around to fill out the paperwork. What the hell, Spaulding? I looked at his vacant eyes. You were trained better than this. I choked back tears as I signed my name, officiating his death. He was a lovable goof, kind of like a little brother. And now he was dead. A week later, the rest of us were back in Germany. We landed at Ramstein Air Base near Frankfurt and then loaded buses on our way back home to Vilsack, where our lives that were interrupted a year prior had left off. I stared out the bus window at the thick green pines and rain-soaked Audubon. I didn't know what to think about the carefree civilians driving beside us. They were completely oblivious. It was odd to not worry about IEDs. It was weird to be so close to home. Because suddenly, it wasn't such a vague concept. I thought of what it was like going home last time and shuddered. I wondered what it would be like now. This time, everything was different. I thought about Riley Spaulding. We were less than an hour away. Tell me what that 100% meant to you, right then, at the poppy field, when you were done with that final mission. It's like I had closure. My record was clean. I, there were no loose ends. I, I brought them all home like I said I would, and I did my job. I was home. It, I felt like, at the moment, like my decision was made. I was staying in. What does it mean when someone loses their life in a war zone, not in combat, but in a mistake like this? To die in combat... We all raised our right hands. We all said we would do it. It was something we were trained to do. We were prepared to do. You expected that as a possibility for you. It's always there. It's always in the back of your mind. But then when something like that happens, it's just so disenfranchising. It's just the whole meaning of everything you're doing. There's nothing to it. It's just such a waste. It's pointless and and stupid and, and thus harder to deal with. It's easy to say, these are the people that killed my friend. And then to have some kind of recourse against that, you know? If anything, it was functional and helped you do your job. But who would have ever imagined? After that happened, I talked to him once. He was crying. He was saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It was an accident. I didn't mean to. There's no way that would have ever happened if he'd been doing the right thing. There's no excuse for that. You have this 
idea that your guys are so great and you've done such an amazing job and then you get back and then now one of them's dead. Yeah, I didn't talk to him again. That's our show. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnell, with help on this episode from Julia Evans. Jennifer Corley is our editor. Original music by Chris Warren, Ariana Warren, Chris Apple, and Alan Jones. Our outro music is by 1032, a.k.a. Tim Koch, with interstitial music by Drew Andrews and Nathan Asman. At KPBS, John Decker is program director, Nate John is web editor, Emily Jankowski is our technical director, and Kurt Conan is our audio engineer. Special thanks to KBIA in Columbia, Missouri for helping us to record Alex Flynn and to Capital Public Radio in Sacramento for helping us to record Brandon Lincoln. Funding is provided by the KPBS Explorer Program, the Veterans Initiative in the Arts from the California Arts Council, and listeners like you. If you want to learn more and get involved, you can find us online at kpbs.org incoming or at incomingradio.org. And you can listen to all of the episodes of Incoming available right now in podcast form on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and wherever fine pods are found. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com.